Joshua chapters 13 to 21. And uh, you don't have to worry, I'm not going to be preaching all nine chapters verse by verse. And I know some of you are probably breathing a sigh of relief right now. But I do want to focus on a few key verses and highlight some of the key principles that are presented in this extended passage. And now some of you might find passages such as the one before us this morning difficult to study. It, uh, uh, my pastor in Louisville said that this, this passage actually reads pretty much like a map. It goes into to great detail describing the boundaries of the lands for the children of Israel. And uh, I, I know I've told you here before that I'm really not very good with verbal directions. If you're trying to tell me how to get somewhere, I'm probably going to end up getting lost. You probably will, will lose me after the second turn. Um, however, if, if you explain, if you, sorry, if you, if you show me on a map, I'll be more likely to get there. Um, but if you actually take me there so I can see it with my own eyes, then I'll never forget how to get there. And I guess that would, would, would make me what they would have called, what they would call a visual learner. And maybe there's some of you here that are also visual learners, so you might, you might struggle with, with some of these long lists of names and places that, that you've never heard of before and intricate details about the lands that, that the people of Israel were to inherit. And so the tendency, I think, the natural reaction for many would be to just gloss over these things, to disregard them. But we need to remember that this is God's word, every bit of it, and that it is important and it has many things for us to learn about God's character. There are principles that you'll find here that show us who God is and show us how we need to be in response to who God is. We need to think here about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which declares that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every word of God, all Scripture, is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. So this passage, again, teaches us a lot about the character of God and who we are to be in response to God's character. So before I, I begin with this passage, I'd like to commit our time to the Lord once more in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your holy word, for your word contains the words of life. Lord, I thank you that your word equips us, your word challenges us, your word shows us our areas of sin, your word shows us areas where we need to grow. Lord, your word shows us your faithfulness, your word shows us who you are, and Lord, we know that you never change. You are the same yesterday and today and forever. So, Lord, I want to come before you now and confess my own weakness. Lord, you, far more even than I know, how dependent I am on your grace at this very moment, on your empowerment that, that you would enable me to preach what your word says and not what I think. 
Lord, I pray that you will help each one of us who is here to submit to what your word says. And Lord, that we would find great encouragement in your character. Lord, in your sovereignty and your faithfulness to the promises you make to your people. So Lord, I pray again that we would all come away changed as we examine what your word would teach us this morning. And we pray this by your grace and for your glory in Jesus' name. So before I really dive into the passage, I just really quickly want to, want to explain that, that once again, as we've seen a bit of a pattern here, that this passage shows us God's sovereignty and shows us God's faithfulness to his promises. But first of all, we want to see his sovereignty in the way that he has mapped out, that God has mapped out the exact boundaries for every single tribe of Israel. That he had decreed where they would lay their head at night and where they would would rise up in the morning. The exact boundaries were decreed by God. In chapter 15, we see that the inheritance that was given to Judah. In chapter 16 and 17, we see the inheritance for Ephraim and Manasseh. In chapter 18, we see the inheritance for Benjamin. In 19, we see the inheritance for Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. And then finally, for Joshua. I also want you to see that although there was no land specifically given to the Levites, that they were only given specific cities and their pasture lands. And that will become uh, very important for us to understand later on. So let me just read here one uh, representative passage that kind of gives you a flavor for what this, this chapter is all about, or what this passage is all about. So turn with me, please, to Joshua chapter 19. And we're looking here at verses 17 to 23. Chapter 19, 7, 17 to 23. The fourth lot came out for Issachar, for the people of Issachar, according to their clans. Their territory included Jezreel, Cheseloth, Shunem, Hapharim, Shion, Anerahoth, Rabbath, Kishion, Ebez, Remeth, Enganim, Enhada, Bethpazes. The boundary also touches Tabor, Shehazuma, Beth Shemesh, and its boundary to the ends of Jordan, 16 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Issachar, according to their clans, the cities with their villages. So there's a lot of detail here, and of course we don't really know where most of these cities were. We can only guess based on some of the archaeological records, but we really have no firm idea of where exactly those boundaries were. But have you ever stopped to think that God has not only mapped out the boundaries for the people of Israel, but he has also mapped out our boundaries as well. So God has ordained in his sovereign plan for your life that you would be born, or at least live in Canada, or possibly in Wales, and that you would live at this time in in British Columbia, here in Kelowna, that the neighbors that you have are the particular neighbors that God has ordained for you to have. 
that the family that you live in has been ordained by God that you would live in that specific family at this specific time. And that if you were here as a Christian this morning, that God ordained that you would hear the gospel, perhaps in your family or from a friend or a co-worker, and that you would respond at this particular time. And God has also ordained that you would be here this morning in this church to hear this particular message. So I pray that as you sit there this morning, that you are active listeners to what God would say to you, that you engage with God's promises for you, that you begin to meditate more deeply on who God is, on God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness, and then to really think about what does that mean for me? How does that play itself out in my life? How should that play itself out in my life? How can I respond to God's promises to me based on his character as revealed here in his word? Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 28. I'm not just making this up here. God has ordained the boundaries, not just for you, but for every single person on the planet who ever lived and whoever would live. Think about that for a second. Think about all the different permutations and combinations of situations that got you to be here at this point in time. They say that one red light can affect the destiny of your life. But we know differently. We know that even though we plan our way, that ultimately it is God who is directing our steps. So we can rest in that fact. And as we think about who God is in this passage, think about that. Think that God has brought you here this morning. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So in God, whether you are here as a believer or not, in God you live and move and have your being that your next breath is dependent on God giving the life to your body as he upholds and sustains his creation by the word of his power. So I want you to think about as that as we, as we meditate on how big this God is and on how awesome his promises are for we who are his children. Now, I know last week we we covered some really difficult subject matter. Last week, we saw how the Lord actually hardened the hearts of the Canaanite kings and their armies so that they would be utterly destroyed by the armies of Israel. 
And we saw that once those armies had been destroyed, how God commanded the people of Israel to go into those cities and kill every man, woman, and child. These are hard truths to stomach, aren't they? They run contrary to our natural way of thinking. But they do reveal who God is. We actually see God's holiness and his wrath and his power being shown as he commanded these things against the Canaanites. But this morning we're going to see how this same event, the destruction of the Canaanites and the clearing out of the land, also shows the other side of the coin. We'll see this morning how God's love and his grace and his mercy were being shown to his people as he cleared out the land before them. So let me say that again. The same event demonstrates God's character towards those who love him and towards those who hate him. With the expulsion and the eradication of the inhabitants of the land, we see God's holiness, wrath, and power, which were being poured out on the Canaanites for his glory. And we also see how his love and grace and mercy were being poured out on the Israelites for his glory. So turn with me now, please, to to Joshua chapter 13. Joshua 13. Let me read the first seven verses. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Mira that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal-Gad below Mount Hermon to Libo-Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mishrafoth Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. So we saw several weeks ago for the two and a half tribes, they had their land, their inheritance, was east of the Jordan River. But for the remaining nine and a half tribes, their territory was the land of Israel, from the border of the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, north to Lebanon, and then down into what we now know as Egypt. And we know that this land is contested even to this day. Israel has enemies on three of the four sides. And if there was land instead of an ocean on the west side, they would have an enemy there as well. To the north, they have Lebanon wanting to destroy them. To the south, they have Egypt wanting to destroy them. And to the east, they have Syria and and all those Muslim countries that want to wipe 
Israel off the map. So in many cases, this hasn't really changed. The situation was, was no different really then than it is now. And the same God that was sustaining Israel then is the same God that is sustaining Israel now. The fact that Israel exists is a miracle. It's a miracle. But you see, the promise of the land, as, that, as we're going to see as we move on, the promise of the land was contingent on their obedience. Now, for those of you that have visited Israel in recent days or months or years, Israel is arguably one of the most secular countries on earth. When I visited there at Christmas of, of 2008, it was, I had just come out of Egypt, and you know what? I actually preferred being in Egypt. Egypt was, was, it was far easier to avoid temptation in Egypt than it was in, was in Israel. Think about that for a second. Israel, where the people of God supposedly are, but they have almost wholesale rejected God. So we're looking ahead to a promised land that is beyond the national country of Egypt, or of Israel, rather. We are looking ahead to a spiritual promise, and that is the promise that we'll see in our passage this morning. And we trust that, that one day in the future that Israel will return, that many Ethnic Jews will turn and follow Jesus. And, and until that time, we need to pray that the Lord will be doing a work in their hearts. Let's go back here 3,000 years, back to the time of Joshua. Back to the time when they had just completed killing off the, the, the armies of the north and the armies of the south that had, had joined a confederacy against them, and they had wiped them out. And they had wiped out many of the cities. And now the Lord says, why don't you go in and take the land that I promised you? I promised you, it's yours, go and get it. This process of taking the land would take about another seven years. As city by city, they went and they took the land that God has promised. But before I get into a bit more depth here, let's now turn to the end of the passage that, we're, that I want to cover this morning. Look at Judges chapter 21, or sorry, Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their, land, into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Every single one of God's promises had been fulfilled. 
And as we'll see, the only ones that had not been fulfilled wasn't because of any lack on God's part. It was because of a lack of of obedience and a lack of faithfulness on the part of Israel. But God had given them the land just as he had promised. We see this promise back when it was given to Abraham back in Genesis 15, 16, where God told Abraham that his people would come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We looked at that last week. There was that 400-year span where God was, was patient and merciful with the Amorites. That his vengeance was not yet being fulfilled, that he was long-suffering with the Amorites. But as we know, they didn't repent. God hardened their hearts that they may come against Israel and be destroyed. God made the promise to Abraham again in Genesis 17, verses 6 to 8. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The sign of this was the covenant of circumcision. And then in Exodus 3.17, God extended that promise to Moses. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then God extended the promise again to Joshua in Joshua 1.3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given to you just as I have promised to Moses. God told Joshua that no one would be able to stand before him, that just as God was with Moses, so he would also be with Joshua. And he made the promise again, I will never leave you or forsake you. And this promise was extended again, not just to the people of Israel and to Joshua, but it was also extended to his people today. God has promised that we will inherit his promised land. God has promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us. Is that not glorious? Whatever you are currently facing, whatever problems you are facing in this life at this point, Rest on the promise that you will inherit the promised land. That even now you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Earlier this week, as I read one of the weekly weekly emails that I get from Voice of the Martyrs, I read of a a 14-year-old girl in Uganda who when her father found out that she had committed her life to Christ, locked her up in a room. And she didn't even have any food or water in there. If it wasn't for her brother, sliding food and water under the door, she would have perished. But she was there for six months. And when, when her brother finally went to the neighbors and they went to the police 
This 14-year-old girl was released. But her hair had turned yellow from the lack of nutrition. And she was crippled from the lack of nutrition. And one report said that she only weighed 20 kilograms. I can't even imagine that. But what do you think sustained that girl through those six months locked in that room? The promises of God. And to this day, by God's grace, she continues to praise Jesus. Her faith has remained firm because she knows the promises of God. You sitting here this morning, do you know the promises of God? Are you standing on the promises of God as we like to sing here? I pray you are. Because that is all that will sustain you through the trials of life. God's promises given to you and reminded to you by his Holy Spirit that indwells you. Brothers and sisters, we are here this morning to be reminded of these truths from God's word. And I pray that not just at this moment, but this week and for the rest of your life, that you will stand on the promises of God. All of the destruction that we had seen previously was a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his people. God was clearing out his enemies and their enemies in order to give them an inheritance. God was giving them cities and houses to live in that they had not built. He was giving them vineyards and olive groves that were producing a bountiful harvest that they never planted. Brothers and sisters, one day we too will enter God's promised land. And we will live in a mansion that has been prepared for us by Jesus Christ himself. When you think about that, when you learn to strive for that and to love that and to look forward to that and to preach the promise of that to your heart, it completely changes the way that you walk through this life. As I look out here, I know, I know the trials that, that many of you are facing. And there's many trials that, that some of you here are facing that I have no idea about. But I do know the God that is with you if you are a Christian in the midst of your trials. And I pray, I pray that you will begin to know the fruit of the Holy Spirit in a way that you do not yet know. That you will experience the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the mercy and the self-control. that come from the knowledge of God, that come from the preaching of these promises to your heart, that come from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And I pray that you will know the joy that comes in the midst of trials, 
For many of you, I see you smile in the midst of horrible situations. That's joy. That goes far beyond any fleeting happiness. That can only come from God at work in your heart. And beloved, God is glorified. God is glorified when you're able to do this and you're given the peace that passes all understanding. It's easy to be, to be quote-unquote joyful when things are going well. It's easy to be happy when there's food on the table and when there's, there's no strife in the home and when you're feeling good and your, your health is good. But how do you respond when those things aren't there? When there's new, no fruit on the vine? When there's no animals in the stall? Will you rejoice in the Lord then? You can train yourself. Train yourself to rely on these promises. Because you see, there are two different ways that you can respond to the promises of God. You can respond to the promises of God in faith, or you can respond to the promises of God in unbelief. Where there is true faith, works of obedience will follow. Where there is disbelief, disobedience will follow. So how do you think the people of Israel responded to these promises that, that God would give them the land. If you were a teacher, if you were a school teacher and you were going to give the children of, of Israel a grade on, on how they responded to the obedience or to the, to the promises of God, would you give them an A? Or maybe a B minus? Or a D plus? Or maybe even a fail? Well, first let's look at those who would receive a, a low grade and I would argue a failing grade. Look at, at chapter 13, verse 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Francis Schaeffer here explains that suddenly, however, after all the victory, there comes a new note, the failure of the people of God to possess their possessions. Though it lay open before them, they simply did not take hold of that which was theirs to hold. In other words, it's yours. Why don't you go and get it? Well, it is true that for a time they couldn't. They couldn't drive out the Jebusites chapter 15, verse 63, and that was finally accomplished under King David. Turn with me to, to chapter 17, 12. We read here that the children of Manasseh couldn't drive out the people from some of the cities. But in verse 13, we read that even when they grew strong, they didn't drive them out, but instead they put them under forced labor. We don't know exactly what had gone on here. Maybe they, they thought, hmm, well, it worked with the Gibeonites. It is pretty good to have people to draw water and to chop wood for us. 
What wrong would a few more slaves do? I mean, and really, after all, they're, they're not really serving us. They're actually serving God. We don't really know how they were trying to justify their actions here, but what they were doing was disobedient. They weren't told to make these people their slaves. They were told to, to, to make them dead. They weren't told to put them under forced labor. They were told to put them under the sword. And so they were disobedient. It was the same thing in 1610. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. If you read Judges, you'll see that this had disastrous consequences for Israel. Disobedience has consequences. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that also will he reap. Again from Francis Schaeffer, During the time of the judges and beyond, instead of gaining ground, they slowly lost it because they had not possessed their possessions on the basis of God's promises. So they left their enemies living in the land right there along beside them, even though they had been commanded to kill them all. Take the time and read Judges. Again and again and again, they were either attacked by their enemies or else they were corrupted by their enemies as, they, as the people of Israel adopted the vile practices of those heathen nations. And this was all just as the Lord promised would happen if they disobeyed. So we need to ask, what application does this have for us today? Well, for starters, you need to ask yourself, am I being disobedient to God right now? Ask yourself, are you walking in obedience to God at this point in your life? What areas in your life are you failing to submit to God? God doesn't want part of you. He won't be satisfied with part of you. He wants all of you. It's all or nothing. If he is not the Lord of your whole life, he is not your Savior. He is Lord and Savior. It's not either or. It's both and. You need to ask yourself, are you trying, even though you're fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil, are you trying to fight in your own strength? Or are you trying to fight in the strength that only God can provide? Or maybe you're not even fighting the world. Maybe you've adopted the world's thinking and the world's practices, and you're increasingly looking more and more like the world. Or maybe you've hoisted the white flag and, and surrendered to the world. Or maybe even worse, you've actually made friends with the world. Let me ask you this, would you rather have the pleasures of the world and commit treason against the Lord by not submitting everything to him, or would you rather submit to him and have life now and have it more abundantly, but far more than that, that you will have eternal life in fellowship 
with God and his people forever and ever and ever. If you are trying to make friends with the world, hear this dire warning from James 4.4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we want to be friends with God's enemies, we make ourselves God's enemy. Ask yourself, am I a friend of God or am I a friend of the world? I trust, however, this morning that I'm preaching predominantly to friends of God. And not just friends of God, but children of God. And if that's the case, what promises can you hold on to? The same promises that we talked about earlier. That Jesus Christ himself is is going ahead to prepare a place for you. He has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. He has promised that he would make you, through progressive sanctification, more and more and more like God in his strength. And what about the application here about the promises of God for those here who are not believers? I'm laying before you the words of life. I'm laying before you the promise of eternal life. Take hold of it. Turn from your sin and take hold of Jesus, trusting that the only righteousness that you will ever really know is his righteousness given to you. And that in Christ, your guilt, every single sin that you have ever committed or ever will commit in Jesus will be removed. That's the promise of God. That's the promise of God. Now let's take a look at an example of somebody who did lay hold of the promise of God. Turn with me, please, in your Bible to Joshua chapter 14. I want to read verses 6 to 15. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, concerning you about me, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word again as was my heart. But my brothers made up, sorry, but my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, These forty-five years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness, and now, behold, I am 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength 
now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron came, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. So this is the same Caleb that stood firm with Joshua 45 years, sorry, 47 years earlier and went to spy out the land. The other ten spies trembled because of the Anakim, the giants who dwelt in the land, and only Joshua and Caleb stood firm on the promises of God. We read that Caleb wholly followed the Lord his God. Caleb said it, and then Moses also testified to the same fact. Caleb was faithful back then, and Caleb remained faithful even now. Even though Caleb was 85 years old, his strength still remained. God fulfilled his promise to Caleb, and now Caleb was going to act on it. The giants were still there. The Anakim still lived in the land. They were the same giants that had lived there all those years prior. But Caleb knew the promise of God, and so he acted on it. 85 years old. Think about that for a second. I wonder, are there giants in your life? We all have them. We all face giants. But just as, as nine-foot-tall giants were nothing before the hand of God, the same is true for the giants that you face. Maybe they don't seem like they're nine feet tall. Maybe they seem like nine, 90 or 900 feet tall. But they're nothing before the sovereign God of the universe. We have people here who are 85 and older. And maybe your strength is not for physical war. Maybe you can't go out and come in like you once did. But I trust that by God's grace, even though your strength may not be for physical war, how is your strength for spiritual war? Are you going stronger in the strength of the Lord, or are you growing weaker? Are you allowing bitterness and unforgiveness to take root in your heart? Or are you rather fighting against those things and growing stronger in overcoming them? Are you allowing fear to take root in your heart? Or are you, like Caleb, resting in the promises of God? That's true whether you're 85 or 65 or 5. God's promises are just as true for you now as they were when you first came to know him. Ask yourself, are you growing stronger in these things?
in the grace that God gives. Think for a moment about King David and the sin that that he fell into as an older man when he tried to, to rest on his past victories. But Caleb didn't do that. Caleb wasn't looking to the past and, and saying, well, I was, I was a bold man then, but I'm 85 now. I'm gonna, I, need, I deserve a rocking chair. I can sit in that rocking chair and just spend out my days thinking and telling stories about the past. He knew that the fight still remained. The world is still competing for your attention. The flesh still wants to manipulate you into sinning against God. And the devil is still a roaring lion seeking to devour you. You need to stand on the promises of God and fight the good fight and lay hold of the eternal life that is promised to those who truly love him. Caleb didn't rest on his past victories. He pressed on into the battle. And we know what happened. God gave him Hebron. And that eventually became the the royal city, the place where David had his throne. We need to think, though, too, that, that Hebron is largely now in Palestinian control. And I find it, just as an aside, I find it bizarre that, that, that anybody other than Israel could lay claim to that land when it was promised there to them by God. I would argue that, that there's nobody else anywhere on the face of the planet that can claim any land as theirs except for the people of God and God's promised land. And so we want to lay hold of the promised land, not just a physical promised land, but a spiritual one. There's many people who make a profession of faith when they're young, but they continually look back and try to to build and make that as the confidence for their salvation. And there's people that will even proclaim to them, no, you made a sincere profession of faith and no matter what your life looks like now, you're saved. Beloved, that's not true. If you look like the world, you're of the world. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. Of course, we all have a bad apple every now and then. But is your life characterized by obedience? Are you growing in godliness? I hear of pastors who, when they meet with people in the last hours of their lives, they have no confidence that they say words like, I hope, I hope, as they're about to depart and face the Lord. If you were given a a, a death sentence now, that if you were told today that you have terminal cancer and that you only have days or possibly weeks to live, where would your confidence lie? 
would you say, I hope? Or would you instead say, I know, I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Where is your confidence? If your confidence is in your works, that confidence will give you no hope on that day. The only confidence that any one of us can have is in the perfect work of Jesus Christ applied to us and his blood shed for our sins that on that cross that the Father punished him instead of us. That is the only hope we can have. That is the only promise that we can hang our lives on. That when Jesus said, it is finished, that it really was finished. That he really did pay the penalty that I owed. He paid the debt. He paid the debt that I could never pay. He paid the debt that you could never pay. That is the promise that you have to lay your faith on. So yes, in the past, Caleb did follow the Lord, but he showed that his faith was real because his faith remained all these years later to the point where he's 85 years old. So I want to ask you this morning, do you want the victory? Do you want to inherit the promised land? Do you really want to inherit the promised land? And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, do you really want to inherit Jesus Christ? Because he is the inheritance for his, peop his people. Again, I'm laying before you the path of life. And I pray that by God's grace and for your glory, that you will lay hold of the life that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.